Okay, if you would please turn to the Acts of the Apostles. I'll be reading Acts chapter 6, verses 7 through 15. Acts chapter 6, verses 7 through 15. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face was like the face of an angel. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant, inspired word to our hearts. Let's pray. Father, in my bodily weakness this morning, help me. May your word through teaching and through preaching not be hindered. May you rest upon us here, amongst us, within us, causing not just our minds to work, but our hearts to be softened, our hearts to see and our hearts to rejoice in the beauty of what we will see in this text, to the glory of Jesus, our High Priest, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Do you look to external rituals? Do you look to types and to shadows when the reality, the fulfillment of those things has come? Is your Christianity mainly performed outwardly? Or is it an internal reality wherever you go? In your religious life, do you look to those external rituals, pictures, and pointers? Or do you look to and to live by the reality to which those pictures and pointers, particularly in the Old Testament, were pointing to? 
That's the question I want to hang over what we see this morning. Now, I have a theory, and it's only a theory of a phenomenon that I have seen happening over the last decade or so, more and more. And it's not to say of all of what I'm going to mention, all persons, but here's a theory I have of why so many younger, quote-unquote, evangelical persons who were raised up in popular evangelicalism with its seeker sensitiveness, etc., are gravitating more and more to high liturgical churches with very religious rituals like Roman Catholicism, Greek Orthodoxy, Anglicanism. And that is this. For many, I think it's because the reality of Christ crucified and raised from the dead has been gutted of its intensity, of its joy, of its depth, by watered-down light-heartedness of so many, quote-unquote, evangelical churches. They just sense there ought to be something more more rich, more joyful, more serious, more otherworldly, more transcendent. And it seems to be missing from many of their program-based churches. Something within them just gnaws at them, saying, well, at least it would be better to go to external rituals because at least there they're trying to have a sense of awe and wonder and mystery better that than the flippant light-hearted so-called gospel churches of easy believism uh, that's my theory now at the core here's my contention that what they're missing is the reality and the depth of biblical truth permeating their souls by the power of the Holy Spirit. They're missing the reality and they're settling for external pointers to the reality. Many people throughout church history in every religion and within Judaism and Christianity are religious blinded blinded to reality to the reality of the transcendent God the crucified risen and ascended Christ who intimately indwells his people by the power of the Holy Spirit. The gospel was then and the gospel is now the power of God. The gospel, that is words, sentences, truth statements and arguments is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes.
Now, it is absolutely true that the Creator, the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, set up a bunch of external rituals as precursors, as pointers to the reality that was to come. And then came in Jesus Christ. And Stephen got this. Stephen preached this. Stephen argued from the Scripture for this to the point that even Saul of Tarsus, Ph.D. in theology of his day, he could not refute him because the Scriptures were on Stephen's side. And that preaching of Stephen is what angered the non-regenerate religious people so much that Stephen's message got him killed. So as we turn to our passage, what I want to do first is be up front and give you my conclusion. And then we'll work through it. In other words, this is what I think is happening and what Stephen was teaching and preaching. Stephen was speaking about Jesus from Nazareth being the fulfillment of Moses and of the law and of the customs and of the temple sacrificial bloody system. Jesus fulfilled it. And therefore, he would say, those things, like all the priestly duties in the temple and the sacrificial system, are not needed anymore. They were pointers. They were shadows. And now the reality to whom the shadows pointed has come. That's what got him killed. We'll see that in the weeks to come. But, okay, Joe, having said that, then why does Luke say this? Verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him, that is Stephen, speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. In verse 13, And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak against, excuse me, words against this holy place. And the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Well, Luke says that was a false testimony. I just said, well, it's essentially what Stephen was preaching. Here's why. The falseness that Luke is referring to here 
is the untrue twist, okay, that these religious Jews put to what Stephen was saying, to what Jesus declared. In other words, by saying, quote, they were speaking, Jesus and Stephen, blasphemy. That's false. They were speaking blasphemy against God, against the temple, against Moses and the law. And to say that about Stephen is a false testimony. Stephen and Jesus to whom he's appealing, they were upholding God, not speaking against Him. They were upholding the law. They were upholding Moses by proclaiming that the fulfillment that God had foretold about the law and Moses and the temple sacrifices, the fulfillment has come. And thus, the pointers, the rituals, pass away. And it is therefore false to say, Stephen is a blasphemer and speaks against Moses and against the temple. He doesn't. He upholds them in what they were for. So, did Jesus, did Stephen say, the customs of Moses will be changed, and the temple will come down, Yes, they did. But in so doing, that is not to be speaking against God or against Moses or against God's purposes for the temple. That's what I want us to see. So, we go to our text. Remember in the last sermon, we are introduced to Stephen. He was one of the seven as we read back at verse 3 of chapter 6. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And so Stephen, he had a hands-on administrative duty and a job in distributing to the poor widows within the church food and goods. And so now... A month later, or eight months later, or a year later, we don't know. Luke doesn't say. He picks up in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So, here's Stephen. He's not an apostle, but he was given by the Spirit the ability to perform signs and wonders. Now, except for the 12 apostles and the apostle Paul, 
only Stephen and Philip and Barnabas. Only those other three does Luke record that were performing healings or miracles within the early church. <coughs> Stephen is a Hellenistic Jew. Hellenism, big word for Greek, Greekism. Greek is his first language. He's from the diaspora, grew up outside of the Jewish homeland. His first language was not Aramaic like it was for Peter or, or Jesus. It was Greek. And so, like many of the early Christians within Jerusalem now, they're still synagogue goers. They're having conversations with their fellow Jews about Jesus and most of them are probably still members. It'll take a while maybe for them to get kicked out. So, he's talking to them about what he has found in Jesus. Now, in the synagogue of the freedmen, it's referring to about 100 years earlier under Pompey when he came and Rome took over uh, Jerusalem and Judea, etc. They took away a bunch of Jews and made them slaves. And so... Eventually, the Jews were kicked out of Rome, and the descendants of these Jews, many of them made their way back to Jerusalem, and they founded this synagogue of the freedmen. But he goes on to talk about a bunch of other Greek speakers who were Jews from the diaspora, spread abroad through the, all the different regions of the Roman Empire. And so that's his point. They are Greek-speaking Jews. And now he's in a big debate. Because what Peter was preaching is that he's opening up Scripture, he's arguing, and he's showing that Jesus was the promised Messiah. The Son of David. The fulfillment of the law. He is the prophet of which Moses foretold. He is the fulfillment of what's happening in the temple. He would say things like, Jesus is greater than Moses. All of what's happening right now in the temple was pointing to Jesus of Nazareth, whom our leaders crucified. And this was way too much for his fellow Jews to handle. So they tried their best to beat him in debate, to beat him with Scripture, and it didn't happen. They couldn't do it. And so they planned and they plotted and got false witnesses to put twist on this, to stir up their fellow Jews in Jerusalem to the point where they would drag him before the Sanhedrin, the council. And so we pick up in verse 12. They stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon Stephen and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. 
We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And so they say, we heard Stephen say, Jesus will destroy this place. Well, they're in the temple. He will destroy the temple in Jerusalem. So, here's why I want to go first. Did Jesus say anything like that? First, let's go to Matthew 26. Jesus is on trial in the temple grounds before the Sanhedrin, just like Stephen is now. And this is what we read in Matthew 26, verses 59 to 61. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And both Matthew and Mark who record this then say, Jesus kept his mouth shut. He was silent, didn't respond to it, didn't say, no, I didn't. Didn't say, yes, I did, but he was silent. Then later that day, as Jesus hung on the cross, people coming in and out of Jerusalem, crowds through the roads, you can see whoever's being crucified that day. And we read this from Mark 15, verses 29 to 30. This is what the crowds are saying mockingly. Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. <laughs> okay. Those words about what Jesus said are coming from other people saying what he said. Maybe, maybe not. But therefore, probably the most important text to go to is in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verse 19. Now, get the context, because this is where Jesus actually does speak words very much like this. And the context is that he's in Jerusalem, he's in the temple, and he has, with a whip, just chased out the money changers from the temple. And we read in verse, uh, start with verse 18 of John 2. So the Jews said, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? And then John throws in this comment. But 
he was speaking about the temple of his body. All right, so from that, so far we know this. We know Jesus was connecting his death with the temple. We know that destroying the temple here with his words on that occasion referred to his own death. That's clear. We also know Jesus, throughout the Gospels, would make clear statements. No one destroys my body, or, or in that sense, or takes my life. I lay my life down voluntarily. And so, therefore, we know that when he says, destroy this temple, he said, yeah, you'll kill me. That's true. You will destroy this temple. But he also lays his body down. So, Jesus could have, and probably did, say, can't prove it, but if he would have, it would have not been against anything else that we know. In Scripture, he could have validly said, I will destroy this temple. That is, I will lay down my life, and I will raise it up, my body, in three days. And that's what they accuse him of. They accuse him, Jesus said he would destroy the temple. And so, the big question is, okay, what did he mean? In other words, you say, we already know what he meant. You just, well... Here's the question. Did Jesus only mean that he, as a human being, would die and then be raised from the dead? And that's it, period. See, if that is all that he meant, then why did he refer to himself? as the temple. Why would he say such a provocative thing while standing in the temple itself? He's not naive. He knows that most people will take him to mean this massive physical structure with outdoors and indoor buildings. It's huge. I will destroy it. He's not dumb. He knows they're going to think he's referring to taking down the sacrificial system that's happening in the temple. So, I'm convinced Jesus meant both the temple of his body will die You've you got to get the picture of what's happening in the Scripture. Yes, God is omnipresent, but He also made it clear that construct the tabernacle exactly as I say, construct the Holy of Holies exactly as I say, and there is a special kinds of, of, of manifestation and presence that God would come to in the temple. 
David, you're not going to build it in the, 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 the main structure now from tabernacle to real, 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 real strong, sturdy buildings. But your son Solomon will build a house where I'll be housed in the, the holy of holies. And this, the Shekinah glory of God comes down in the dedication of Solomon's temple. And the Apostle John says very clearly when God the Son becomes incarnate, he templed or tabernacled with us. God's very presence. He is the temple temple. So he, he, he meant his body, but therefore it's connected to what he means physical temple that people have built. There is a destruction of that coming. I'm convinced he meant both. And that's why at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, when Jesus died, God caused an earthquake and God caused the curtain in the temple separating the outer holy place from the inner sanctuary where the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat were to be torn from top to bottom, signifying that when Jesus died, the temple there in Jerusalem, the sacrificial system, died. As if Jesus is declaring, His Father is declaring, the whole temple sacrificial system set up in Jerusalem through which God, through Moses, gave to the people of Israel all of its bloodletting of animals for the covering of sin, all of the priestly activities and duties. It's as if he's saying all of that ends, dies when I, Christ Jesus, die. Jesus is the reality to which all of the happenings within the temple pointed. He's the reality to which all the duties of the priest and of the high priest pointed to. This is clear in Scripture. So just give me a couple minutes. First, in Hebrews 7, verse 20 to 25, the Hebrew writer tells us, For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one, referring to Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, quote, The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through Him. 
So what's happening even now, we see when this is written a decade and a half to two decades later, is that the priesthood happening in the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed. It's nullified. It's obsolete. The outward picture of the high priest going into the holy of holies with the blood of animals now passes away because the reality to which it pointed came. And thus the curtain was torn from top to bottom. The Hebrew writer goes on to say in chapter 9, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places behind the curtain. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For Christ has entered into the holy places. Excuse me. For Christ has entered... Oh, this is huge. That was a good Freudian slip. Not into holy places made with human hands, like in Jerusalem, which are copies of the true things. But Christ has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages in order to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And then in chapter 10 of Hebrews, verses 10 to 12, He writes, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And so we see animal sacrifices which Moses instituted by God's direction are destroyed. They're no more. And in Mark 4, the Last Supper, Jesus made it absolutely clear that His blood is the blood of the new covenant. His death. Dead animals, day of atonement, once a year, the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat, were only a picture. Jesus laid down His life. And then, He died 
and that Shekinah glory that filled Solomon's temple, three days later went into that tomb and raised him from the dead. He is the temple of God's glory. That's why the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 1.21, God raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory. And the book of James calls Jesus the Lord of glory. Meaning, since Christ, the temple whether that's now 2,000 years later or while the temple's still standing and Peter's speaking, the temple is not the place to go to see and to experience the mercy of the glory of God. Jesus is the place. And as he predicted, laid down his life, the temple was destroyed and in three days raised up. And so Jesus fulfilled his prediction that he is the replacement for the temple in Jerusalem. We have a new temple. We have a new high priest. We have a one-time and one-time only sacrifice for sins. We have access to God's presence. Not in the temple, but anywhere on earth. And decades later, the Apostle John, while on the Isle of Patmos, will tell of the vision in Revelation 21, 22, 23 this way. And I saw no temple in the city because its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, Jesus. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb, Jesus. And so, yes, Jesus meant when He said, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. He meant the temple of His body being killed and rising. Absolutely. But also, when that happens, He means it puts an end to the physical temple there. In all of its happenings. All right. Now we go to Stephen. Stephen must have been using similar language. He's probably also quoting Jesus. But the question is, did Stephen mean exactly the same thing Jesus meant? And just what I mean by that is look at verse 14 for a second. Because he seems to take it a bit further. For we 
have heard him say, and now I am assuming there are some things like this that Stephen said, and I tried to show that at the beginning, why I say that. But we have heard Stephen say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. It's future tense. Jesus said, within a period of three days, I'll be destroyed, I'll be killed as a temple, and I will rise again, and it all happens within three days. Stephen now says, Jesus will destroy the temple. It's not yet destroyed. And so, at this juncture in history, this is what I think is happening. Jesus' death and His resurrection removed the whole basis of the temple. Its purpose, even though it's still standing, has passed away. They were all types, they're all shadows pointing to the reality who was Christ. So now they're no longer needed. But here's Stephen, and it's probably at least a year after Jesus' death and resurrection. And the priests are daily performing their duty, killing animals. Blood is flowing. The sacrificial system is still going on. And that's the context in which Peter is preaching. And so I think what's happening is this. And what Stephen knows, because he's in this transition time, that the actual dismantling of the temple and its sacrificial system is coming. It's coming. And, 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 and maybe there's this gradual dismantling that's even happening. I say that because that's why I started with verse 7 this morning, so I want you to look at it for a moment. Why does Luke insert that when he now, he, right into the transition into the Stephen passage? He says, And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiply greatly in Jerusalem. And then he adds, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. We're coming to faith in Jesus, which cannot mean anything other than these priests now happily know that their job is obsolete. <coughs> so when Stephen says, Jesus will destroy the temple, he will change the customs that Moses, in the first five books of the Bible, delivered to us. He means that because Jesus has already destroyed the basis of the Old Testament sacrificial system, he now will go on and actually dismantle its practices until it's gone. And Stephen says this, 35 years before the temple is totally destroyed. And the sacrificial animal, sacrificial system is no more. 
a short 35 years, just as Jesus himself prophesied. Not one brick will lay upon another here. It will be gone, decimated. So remember, Luke tells us these were false witnesses who said these sayings. False witnesses who twisted, really, what Stephen was saying. They're saying he speaks against God and against the temple and against Moses and against the law. He's a blasphemer. And we're going to see that it worked. They wanted him dead and it worked. It got Jesus dead. But it is those statements that they made in the twist upon what he's saying is what was false. It was not false that the temple system was to be destroyed. It was not false that Jesus would change the customs that Moses set up. Luke knows this. Luke is writing 25 years later. He has watched 25 years of the gospel, creating not only that, he hasn't even got to this point at this point, but going into the two non-Jews can be saved. He has watched the customs get changed. He knows this is true. So, for instance, what I mean, let me just give you two examples. In chapter 15 of Acts that Luke is going to go on to tell us, he talks about this big controversy that blew up within the church because there is a bunch of Jewish Christians in their own little sect that started to preach and to teach that Gentiles cannot be saved unless they convert to Judaism, particularly via being circumcised. That was a custom that came through Moses. I know it started with Abraham, but Moses tells us about that. And it's reinstituted through Moses. So we read in verse 1 of chapter 15, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Meaning by Jesus. And so they have a big council meeting. Paul and Barnabas, they go from Antioch down to Jerusalem. This issue's dealt with. And then the decision of the apostles was, yes, this custom of circumcision belonged to the old system and is not to be part of the new covenant changed. And then in Acts 10, Luke lets us know of the vision that God gave to Peter. He's sitting on the roof. Leviticus comes up and all these animals that God said, you my people Israel, the Jews, you're not to eat these animals. God gave him a vision with all those animals in it. And then he said, get up Peter, rise and kill them and then eat them. <laughs> no way! What's happening? God is telling Peter clearly that since the fulfillment of Christ has come, kosher diet, 
that custom is gone. Those animals which were called unclean for the Jew, let no man call common or unclean. And so what the false witnesses were saying, it wasn't false to say that they're teaching that the customs are going to change. They're teaching that the temple is purposeless now and will come down. They were teaching that. They were predicting that. The false witnesses did not understand that the kind of destruction of the temple and the sacrificial system and many of the, the customs that Jesus was referring to was a fulfillment. A fulfillment of Moses. A fulfillment of the law. A fulfillment of the purpose of the temple. That's what they didn't grasp until they have eyes to see by the power of the Spirit, the glory of Christ. They did not see that the destruction of the temple meant the fulfillment of what God has promised, the forgiveness of sins. An ongoing, everlasting high priest who remains forever our advocate with God. An always very present, no matter where you are, access to the most holy place, the presence of God's glory. They didn't get that. Stephen did not blaspheme. He was not against God. He was not against the law of Moses. He was not against the temple. He was for their fulfillment. And so as I close, to all of us who believe, do you want to experience, and to go on experiencing the transcendence of God, a holy awe, and wonder? Do you want to sense the other worldliness of God? You don't need to go rebuild the temple or the sacrificial systems. You don't need to reinstitute the priesthood in Jerusalem or of the Roman Mass. You need to believe. You need to go on in Christ's community hearing and hearing and hearing the Word of God, the Gospel of God with an open and a humbled heart to receive the presence of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit flowing out through you it's a fountain. There's no need to conjure up religious rituals. Smell of incense. Looking to an ordained Greek Orthodox priest or a Roman Catholic priest or an Anglican priest in order that they would perform their high rituals on behalf of the pew sitters. 
Why? Do you not know that all of you who are in Christ are priests? Do you not know, as Peter told us, you are a priesthood of God? Or as Paul said to the Corinthians, do you not know that you are the temple of the living God? Don't you know that Jesus made the way of access for mercy and grace that you would find help in your most desperate times of need? Do you want to go on experiencing the loving and forgiving presence of the Shekinah glory of God as they did in Solomon's temple? then go to the reality to which those things pointed. Not to the shadows. Go to Jesus. Enter anytime and anywhere you're at into the unseen holy of holies made without hand. That's what Stephen was preaching. The temple and all of its biblical rituals are coming down. And Jesus, the Messiah, He is the place to go. Go to the reality. Not to pointers to the reality. Go to the reality, not to the shadows that foretold the reality. Jesus Himself gave to us only one ongoing ritual for the community of the saints in their togetherness so that we would constantly be pointed to the fulfillment of all the types in shadows. To the one Lamb of God who sacrificed Himself for our sins once for all. And that's coming to that ritual of the cup of His blood and the bread of His body, which we will be passing out. And as we do and as we sing, we hold together and wait and pray over them together. So if you are a baptized believer, Feel free to partake. If not, let that bypass. Let's close in prayer. Father, may we continue by your mercy and your grace to taste and see the beauty of the fulfillment of all the law of Moses, of all the 
temple and tabernacle systems, of all that was happening in the priesthood that you laid out. May we see the beauty of what Paul said and walk in it as repentant, desperate children that we are the temple because Christ has chosen me, grabbed me, brought me to himself. May we revel in that now as we prepare our hearts, Father, for Holy Communion.